Chapter Twenty, Part B of Aaron's Rod by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, The Broken Rod, Part B. There I don't follow you," said Levison. "Suppose you were in Russia now. I watch it. I'm not. But you're in Italy, which isn't far off. Supposing a socialist revolution takes place all around you, won't that force the problem on you?" "'It is every man's problem,' persisted Levison. "'Not mine,' said Lily. "'How shall you escape it?' said Levison. "'Because to me it is no problem. To bolsh or not to bolsh, as far as my mind goes, presents no problem, not any more than to be or not to be. To be or not to be is simply no problem.' "'No, I quite agree that since you are already existing, and since death is ultimately inevitable,' To be or not to be is no sound problem, said Levison. But the parallel isn't true of socialism. That is not a problem of existence, but of a certain mode of existence which centuries of thought and action on the part of Europe have now made logically inevitable for Europe. And therefore there is a problem. There is more than a problem. There is a dilemma. Either we must go to the logical conclusion, or— Somewhere else, said Lily. Yes, yes, precisely. But where else? That's the one half of the problem. Supposing you do not agree to a logical progression in human social activity, because after all human society through the course of ages only enacts, spasmodically, but still inevitably, the logical development of a given idea. Well then, I tell you, the idea and the ideal has for me gone dead. Dead as carrion. Which idea? Which ideal, precisely? The ideal of love, the ideal that it is better to give than to receive, the ideal of liberty, the ideal of the brotherhood of man, the ideal of the sanctity of human life, the ideal of what we call goodness, charity, benevolence, public-spiritedness, the ideal of sacrifice for a cause, the ideal of unity and unanimity. All the lot, all the whole beehive of ideals, has all got the modern bee disease and gone putrid, stinking. And when the ideal is dead and putrid, the logical sequence is only stink, which for me is the truth concerning the ideal of good, peaceful, loving humanity and its logical sequence in socialism and equality, equal opportunity or whatever you like. But this time he stinketh, and I'm sorry for any Christus who brings him to life again to stink livingly for another thirty years." the beastly Lazarus of our idealism. "'That may be true for you, but it's true for nobody else,' said Lily. "'All the worse for them. Let them die of the bee disease.' "'Not only that,' persisted Levison. "'But what is your alternative? Is it merely nihilism?' "'My alternative,' said Lily, "'is an alternative for no one but myself, so I'll keep my mouth shut about it. "'That isn't fair.' I tell you, the ideal of fairness stinks with the rest. I have no obligation to say what I think. Yes, if you enter into conversation, you have— Bah! Then I didn't enter into conversation. The only thing is, I agree in the rough with Argyle. You've got to have a sort of slavery again. People are not men. They are insects and instruments, and their destiny is slavery. They are too many for me, and so what I think is ineffectual. But ultimately they will be brought to agree, after sufficient extermination. 
and then they will elect for themselves a proper and healthy and energetic slavery. I should like to know what you mean by slavery, because to me it is impossible that slavery should be healthy and energetic. You seem to have some other idea in your mind, and you merely use the word slavery out of exasperation. I mean it none the less. I mean a real committal of the life issue of inferior beings to the responsibility of a superior being. It'll take a bit of knowing who are the inferior and which is the superior, said Levison sarcastically. Not a bit. It is written between a man's brows which he is. I'm afraid we shall all read differently, so long as we're liars. And putting that question aside, I presume that you mean that this committal of the life issue of inferior beings to someone higher shall be made voluntarily, a sort of voluntary self-gift of the inferiors. Yes, more or less, and a voluntary acceptance, for it's no pretty gift after all. But once made, it must be held fast by genuine power. Oh, yes, no playing and fooling about with it. Permanent and very efficacious power. You mean military power? I do, of course. Here Levison smiled a long, slow, subtle smile of ridicule. It all seemed to him the preposterous pretentiousness of a megalomaniac, one whom, after a while, humanity would probably have the satisfaction of putting into prison, or into a lunatic asylum. And Levison felt strong, overwhelmingly strong, in the huge social power with which he, insignificant as he was, was armed against such criminal imbecile pretensions as those above set forth. Prison, or the lunatic asylum. The face of the fellow gloated in these two inevitable engines of his disapproval. "'It will take you some time before you'll get your doctrines accepted,' he said. "'Accepted? I'd be sorry. I don't want a lot of swine snouting and sniffing at me with their acceptance. Bah, Levison! One can easily make a fool of you. Do you take this as my gospel?' "'I take it you are speaking seriously.' Here Lily broke into that peculiar, gay, whimsical smile. "'But I should say the blank opposite with just as much fervor,' he declared. "'Do you mean to say you don't mean what you've been saying?' said Levison, now really looking angry. "'Why, I'll tell you the real truth,' said Lily. "'I think every man is a sacred and holy individual, never to be violated. "'I think there is only one thing I hate to the verge of madness, and that is bullying. "'To see any living creature bullied, in any way, almost makes a murderer of me.' That is true. Do you believe it? Yes, said Levison, unwillingly. That may be true as well. You have no doubt, like most of us, got a complex nature which... Crash! There intervened one awful minute of pure shock, when the soul was in darkness. Out of this shock Aaron felt himself issuing amid a mass of terrible sensations. The fearful blow of the explosion, the noise of glass the hoarse howl of people, the rushing of men, the sudden gulf, the awful, the awful gulfing whirlpool of horror in the social life. He stood in agony and semi-blindness amid a chaos. Then, as he began to recover his consciousness, he found himself standing by a pillar some distance from where he had been sitting. He saw a place where tables and chairs were all upside down, legs in the air, amid debris of glass and breakage. He saw the café almost empty, nearly everybody gone. 
He saw the owner, or the manager, advancing aghast to the place of debris. He saw Lily standing not far off, white as a sheet, and as if unconscious. And still he had no idea of what had happened. He thought perhaps something had broken down. He could not understand. Lily began to look round. He caught Aaron's eye, and then Aaron began to approach his friend. "'What is it?' he asked. "'A bomb,' said Lily. The manager, and one old waiter, and three or four youths had now advanced to the place of debris, and now Aaron saw that a man was lying there, and horror, blood, was running across the floor of the café. Men began now hastily to return to the place. Some seized their hats and departed again at once. But many began to crowd in, a black, eager crowd of men pressing to where the bomb had burst, where the man was lying. It was rather dark. Some of the lamps were broken, but enough still shone. Men surged in with that eager, excited zest of people when there has been an accident. Gray, carabinieri, and carabinieri in the cocked hat and fine Sunday uniform pressed forward officiously. "'Let us go,' said Lily. And he went to the far corner where his hat hung, but Aaron looked in vain for his own hat. The bomb had fallen near the stand where he had hung it and his overcoat. "'My hat and coat,' he said to Lily. Lily, not very tall, stood on tiptoe. Then he climbed on a chair and looked round. Then he squeezed past the crowd. Aaron followed. On the other side of the crowd, excited angry men were wrestling over overcoats that were mixed up with a broken marble table-top. Aaron spied his own black hat under the sofa near the wall. He waited his turn, and then in the confusion pressed forward to where the coats were. Someone had dragged out his, and it lay on the floor under many feet. He managed, with a struggle, to get it from under the feet of the crowd. He felt at once for his flute, but his trampled, torn coat had no flute in its pocket. He pushed and struggled, caught sight of a section, and picked it up. But it was split right down. Two silver stops were torn out, and a long, thin spelch of wood was curiously torn off. He looked at it, and his heart stood still. No need to look for the rest. He felt utterly, utterly overcome, as if he didn't care what became of him any further. He didn't care whether he were hit by a bomb or whether he himself threw the next bomb and hit somebody. He just didn't care any more about anything in life or death. It was as if the reins of his life slipped from his hands, and he would let everything run where it would, so long as it did run. Then he became aware of Lily's eyes on him, and automatically he joined the little man. "'Let us go,' said Lily. And they pushed their way through the door. The police were just marching across the square. Aaron and Lily walked in the opposite direction. Groups of people were watching. Suddenly Lily swerved. In the middle of the road was a large black glisten of blood trickling horribly. A wounded man had run from the blow and fallen here. Aaron did not know where he was going, but in the Via Tornabuoni, Lily turned towards the Arno, and soon they were on the Ponte Santa Trinita. "'Who threw the bomb?' said Aaron. "'I suppose an anarchist.' "'It's all the same,' said Aaron. The two men, as if unable to walk any further, leaned on the broad parapet of the bridge and looked at the water in the darkness of the still-deserted night. Aaron still had his flute section in his hand, his overcoat over his arm. "'Is that your flute?' asked Lily. "'Bit of it. Smashed. Let me look.' 
He looked and gave it back. No good, he said. Oh, no, said Aaron. Throw it in the river, Aaron, said Lily. Aaron turned and looked at him. Throw it in the river, repeated Lily. It's an end. Aaron nervelessly dropped the flute into the stream. The two men stood leaning on the bridge parapet, as if unable to move. "'We shall have to go home,' said Lily. "'Tammy may hear of it and be anxious.' Aaron was quite dumbfounded by the night's event, the loss of his flute. Here was a blow he had not expected, and the loss was for him symbolistic. It chimed with something in his soul—the bomb, the smashed flute, the end. "'There goes Aaron's rod, then,' he said to Lily. "'It'll grow again. It's a reed, a water-plant. You can't kill it,' said Lily, unheeding. "'And me?' You'll have to live without a rod, meanwhile." To which pleasant remark Aaron made no reply. End of chapter 20 Part B